0: On Fossil Downs and Cane Grass Station in a million homes across the nation, they're tuning in Australia on a Sunday morning.
1: Wet season's all over, Macca. I've called it already. In fact, I've been up all night writing you a brand new poem. Do you want to hear it? Do I have a choice, Andy? No, you don't. And it's accompanied by a recording of The Little Green Grasshopper. And he comes out this time of year. All right. You can hear hear him now. Yes, I can. As the new dawn begins, so does another of the six seasons in Kakadu. Bush plums are fruiting, and crocodiles are on the prowl. Their home is Alligator River, and they should be there by now. Speargrass has gone to seed, flattened by knocking down storms. gone, Lightning Man stars in his last show, and mosquitoes start to swarm. For the monsoon has lifted. The skies are clear. And Yumich calls out that...
2: Bungarang is here. <laughs> the one type wears stilettos, I think that's what he said.
0: Professors, engineers, geologists, faceters, surveyors and speleologists are ringing from the rock on a Sunday morning. Yeah, macker in the morning turns my week around, he picks me up when I feel down. I wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. There's Aussies out there doing things, raising money, pulling strings, helping make a place we're really proud of. Doesn't matter who you are, on Sunday morning you're the star, you're all in Macca's green room on a Sunday morning. I start my week with Macca on Sunday morning. Good morning, welcome to the program
3: wherever you are. A bit of rain around for some. There's a big cloud bank right across Australia from Kimberley, right across the centre. And it's been heavy rain in Victoria yesterday and it'll be in New South Wales, probably right up north. Um, uh, Today, tomorrow, a bit of rain around the place. But I suppose it was predicted, wasn't it? A bit of rain around. Um, I was looking at uh, From Gods to Gigabytes, the weather book, History of Weather Forecasting by Richard Whittaker. And there was a bit that took my fancy here. It was talking about, you know, the stratosphere and I was thinking about the planets and all that sort of stuff, but going up, you know, and how cold it gets the further up you go. But uh, there was this little piece in here about the stratosphere and it says it was assumed for many years that the sterile reaches of the upper atmosphere could not support any form of life. But it was later discovered that some large birds flying at prodigious alt- altitudes may on occasion brush the lower la- layers of the stratosphere. In 1973, a Ruppel's Vulture, Rupples Vulture, you'll probably find one of those on the map or in your encyclopedia, struck a jet aircraft at 11,278 metres that's 37,000 feet. And it was also discovered that migrating bar-headed geese regularly overfly Mount Everest. That's at 8,848 eight, uh, 8, metres or 29,000 feet. Wow, the Ruppels vulture has a wingspan of about 2.5 metres. That's about 8, 9 feet. And reaches heights of over 36,000 feet. Sometimes you see, well, I assume they're pelicans up really high. I don't know what it'd be, a thousand, a couple of thousand feet. You can see them way up, way up sometimes. But um, I suppose they get on the thermals and all that sort of stuff. And apparently in 2001, dust particles collected from well within the stratosphere were found to contain bacteria, another example of life that can exist at great heights and in the most unexpected places. Uh... Our number this morning is 1300 700 and the other thing, the heading of this chapter uh, which um, made my hair stand up in the back of my neck, it says using mathematics to predict the future but there's a little quote at the top of the chapter which says this, without mathematics there's nothing you can do, everything around you is mathematics, everything around you is numbers and that was Shankantala Delvi, uh, Devi, sorry, Indian writer and mental mathematician, who lived from 1929 to 2013, and he was known as the human computer. Without mathematics, there's nothing you can do. Everything around you is mathematics, everything around you is numbers. It's probably true, but what of those who throw up their hands and say, I give up when it comes to maths? And I know everybody's talking about STEM subjects, but what about kids who just aren't going to be any good at that? They're just not. So will there be no jobs for them? So everybody will have to be doing STEM? or And if you're not gifted at maths, well, um, or engineering, and th- those two seem to go together. I just think there's a place for everything, isn't there? Like the um, Like the silos, the arts on all over the silos. Because when you look at it, when you look at, silos and art and all the stuff on water tanks and water towers you realize you've got a connection to other people because you realize that that's been done by a, a person somebody's somebody's done that so there's a real human factor in that don't you reckon i reckon so and there's a place for everything you know and i reckon if you don't you know there must be a place for people who either don't want to do maths or can't do maths or don't choose to do it and you know there just must be. Life's not, you know, there's many facets to life. Uh, our number, I gave you the number, 1300 700 on the We've got a lovely um, all-over news for you coming up, uh, why I live where I live, and you especially. Uh, g'day, this is Macca.
4: Good morning, Macca. G'day. It's Peter speaking, mate, at Roseworthy in South Australia. Yep. How are you, Pete? I'm very well, mate, and you?
3: Yeah, good. Good, good. Get-
4: I'm just telling you a little story. I got some people come out of town. They to live in the farmhouse I got here, and the dad asked me whether he could have some chickens. I said, "Of course you can have some chickens," but I said you'll have to have a good pen because the fox will get him. Anyway, they've had the chickens a week or two, and the other day when the the kids went back to school, the little boy must have thought he'd play a little trick on his father. So he went and got when he came home from school, he must have. Uh, got this egg and put it out in the chicken pen. But anyway, Dad came in and he said, Marcus, Marcus, the chickens have got some eggs. So he took the egg in. Only one thing wrong, the egg had a barcode on it. A little boy got it out in the fridge and put it out in the pen. <laughs> Five years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: and the dad's having a, a what, a tree change, is he? And moving to the yeah. country from the, were yeah. they from
4: the city, were they? Or are they? They were from the city, yeah, but they're great people. Yeah. Wonderful people. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah. Mackie, just while you're talking about the silo art, I hope we've put the ball in, in rolling in with the local council to get some silo art on our rows with these silos.
3: Oh, that well, that's a that's a great idea. I think um, absolutely, and there's magic, all mate? sorts of all sorts of stuff. Sometimes you know people play Major Mitchell's, but there's some great mm. ones in Western Australia. But you can just yeah, and follow that round. I think it's lovely. Well, yeah. And the well, more the one at
4: Corinda is magic. The one at Karunda is unbelievable.
3: More the more art, the better. I reckon, Pete. Um, absolutely, Macker. So how's things in Roseworthy, mate?
4: Yeah, no, no, it's pretty nice here. It's uh, dry, which we like it this way. We're still reaping clover seed. We can do it another you know, a week of hot hot weather to get it done. But no, we're getting it there. Very good. We're just sitting here. We've got a little good mate of mine here. We're sitting down, there, down here with a little comfort fire. We've just got a damper on. we thought got Walk in the gate oh, a
3: bit too. oh, how good would that be? We should be there this morning doing our program and get a few little people from around Roseworthy and whatever. There's no show like Macca, buddy. No. <laughs> yeah, we were in Roseworthy. Oh, when was that? Yeah, at the Pineley Fire, the house
4: Pineley Fire. The Rosie Campus was there. That's
3: right. How long ago was that?
4: Three? Four, five years ago. Mm. Wow. Probably more now, mate. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, next, mm. time, next time, you better rub the barcode off the... Um,
4: yeah, oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> That quick second little boy, five years old. <laughs> oh, dear, oh dear. Oh. <laughs> Good yeah. on you. Nice to My talk to you, mate. Meet. Good to talk to you, mate, too. Yeah. Bye for now. And I'll see see
3: you. Uh, yeah. Keep the damper Keep on. Keep the I'll, damper. Yeah, I'll come and yeah, see
4: one you. Morning, okay. One morning. One <laughs> morning.
3: See ya. Good on you, mate. Bye. Bye. How about that? And excited. Says father's really excited because they're moving to the country from the city. And look, the chicken's got a neck.
5: There you go. Uh, G'day, this is Maka. Uh, good morning, Maka. This is Giovanni speaking from uh, Kuala Lumpur. I'm a great believer in uh, in the only thing new that you'll learn today is history that you don't know. And the uh, the words of walsing Matilda have nothing to do with dancing, but they come from a German tradition for apprentices who are wandering around the country, and they called it Off the waltz. And they were rolling along like a barrel or a waltz, with their belongings wrapped up in a great coat, uh, and that was like as a substitute for a warm girl. And they call that the Matilda,
0: There you go.
5: the, you uh, know, the words waltzy Matilda. And uh, another um, another nice little uh, anecdote is that uh, the origin of the word Fair Dinkum comes from the Australia from the uh, Cantonese words Zing Kim. Meaning real gold, which the Chinese diggers uh, used to um, uh, say was the uh, you know the opposite of what was called fool's gold or pyrites that were often worthless uh, pieces presented to sale, and that's how the word fair dinkum came yeah, about.
3: I think I've it's heard that
5: before.
3: Giovanna, what are you doing in <laughs> Kuala Lumpur?
5: Not a lot. Uh, staying alive with a. Uh, um, uh, with a, a daily uh, positive testing of the virus of averaging about 2,000. So uh, it's um, stay at home, go up once a week and uh, uh, keep your mask on and stay away from people. Yeah. That is what you're doing.
3: Yeah. Are um, things pretty uh, bad there in Kuala Lumpur or have been?
5: Well, they, 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 they got up to 3,000 a day uh, positive tests and uh, uh, that was fairly uh, regular for a couple of weeks and then they. Been slowly coming down. Uh, we're um, in what we call a movement control order, where we're um, recommended—not forced to—but we're recommended to stay at home as much as possible and uh, avoid going out. Avoid people uh, closer than one meter, and uh, uh, wear a mask at all times. Yes, exactly. And, uh, so, how long have really you lived?
3: How long have you lived in Kuala Lumpur?
5: Oh, nearly thirty years now. At Macca. Mm-hmm.
3: And you're from Australia originally.
5: Originally, yes, uh, a um, West Aussie uh, uh, from um, uh, Kalgoorlie or Coolgardie, mm. and uh, that was that was many years ago. So uh, I really can't call myself an Australian, although I I listen, I I get a vicarious uh, sample of Australia every week with the program, oh, that's good. which is wonderful.
3: And uh, life in Kuala Lumpur, apart from the the COVID uh, lockdown and things is uh, okay. Has been getting, getting back to normal. I suppose is it?
5: Yeah, well, they've, um, unfortunately, they're um, they they're, they're leaning towards uh, uh, the economic advantages of return to work, and uh, that's a bit of a shame because we're stuck with this virus for some years, I believe. And uh, it's, um, I think it's too early to be uh, to, to be uh, complacent, uh, but. Uh, it's slowly, slowly getting back, and uh, other than that, um, uh, life is life is a breeze. Yeah, Beautiful you, weather, yeah. nice people, good food.
3: There you go. All right, Giovanna. Um, uh, do you get back to Australia much?
5: No, I haven't been back to Australia in many years, and uh, uh, I have no, no I have no plans on returning.
3: What do you do it's over there?
5: Sometime. I'm I'm a chartered accountant. All right. Uh, so. Uh, I have a uh, a practice in uh, law and uh, accounting practice in Hong Kong that I run remotely.
3: Yeah, in Hong Kong, things are pretty interesting there too, aren't they? Is that uh, how yeah. things gone there with your business in Hong Kong?
5: Well, the business business barrels along uh, as normal. Um, the um, uh, the uh, crackdown by the Chinese government is, was expected. Uh, the media have hyped it up a lot and. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the young people think they, they can still get democracy, but they won't because Hong Kong doesn't belong to anybody other than China. Yeah. And China have their rules and you must follow their rules. But otherwise, business is, uh, is, 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 is OK. It's not as good as it used to be, but uh, uh, with um, 1.4 billion people driving the market from, uh, uh, from the mainland of China, it barrels uh, along.
3: Good on you, Giovanni. Nice to talk to you. But right now, a bit of garlic, a bit of garlic and a bit of vegetables that you may not know about. I'm talking to Dougal Munro from...
0: Springside, just south of Orange.
3: And you're a garlic grower, Dougal? That's
0: correct, amongst other things.
3: Uh, I spoke to a garlic grower years ago down on the Murray. They were growing garlic. He did it, I think, because the imported stuff was a bit of a worry, he thought. And he said it was good. It was in demand and you could get a good price for it. But uh, you say labour-intensive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can get good returns with uh, commercial garlic, but it's massive amounts of labour at certain times of the year. So planting, harvesting, and then the cleaning at the curing stage. So that's when it's all hands on. So uh,
3: When you grow garlic, what do you grow? Thousands of hectares like wheat or uh, an acre or what?
0: Well, the last couple of years I've had to scale right down to sort of one hectare sort of scale, but uh, I've usually grown... Five and six hectares, which isn't big compared to some of the big guys down on the Riverland, but compared to about 95% of the rest of the industry in Australia I'm in the sort of top 5 or 10% of scale garlic growers.
3: And why did you decide to grow garlic? What's your training?
0: No formal education in farming. I'm fifth generation out where we are we're former orchardists and potato growers uh, amongst other things. I bought the farm about 10 years ago uh, I was working in the mining industry I'm an exploration geologist. Still work in the mining industry intermittently and I needed something to grow and I looked around what's got a reasonable return what's hardy to my climate uh, where I am high and very cold had a look around the garden my mum had been growing garlic for probably 50 or 60 years and that that seemed to survive everything rabbits pests even nothing touches it so I was like oh that'll give that a crack so Yeah, basically went from zero to hero overnight. My first crop was um, about three or four acres, never having grown it commercially before. And it was like, yeah, a baptism of fire I completely bypassed the fry pan for the fire. And so I bought in some machinery from France for the following seasons to help plant and harvest and went from there. Quite a few
3: farmers do the same sort of thing that you do (laughs) work in the mining industry to subsidise, I don't know, their other or their passion.
0: Definitely passion for me. I enjoy what I do in the mining industry. I'm a really hands-on sort of rocks sort of person, get out and find all deposits is what I've been doing for about 20 years. But it's just one of those things. Uh, nowadays, price of produce return doesn't always meet what you need to you know sustain a mortgage or a family. So you've got to have a secondary income, especially on smaller holdings.
3: Is there a big export market for Australian garlic?
0: Look, there's a small export market, but most of the garlic in Australia that's grown in Australia gets consumed here because demand outstrips what's grown. Give you an idea, like everyone wants Australian garlic, which is good, but they've got to be realistic because they complain about Chinese garlic or Mexican garlic or Argentinian garlic or some of the stuff that comes in from Europe. But that's available when our stuff isn't. Like the Australian garlic season's essentially roughly uh, from October through to the end of February. So when people want garlic, as in the cooler months for all their slow cooking and flavoursome cooking, that sort of thing, and they can't get Australian garlic, and they complain bitterly about it. No, we, we don't want this stuff from China or this stuff from here or there or anywhere, but... You know, it's it's a 365-day-a-year sort of commodity, and um, we've got to fill the gap somehow. So, Dougal, what else do you grow? Grow specialty-coloured potatoes, uh, rare vegetables such as skirit. um What? Water? Yeah, skirret. it's probably the most unusual thing. It's not commonly eaten in Australia or found either. It's um, old vegetable. It's basically what Asia and Europe ate before the potato arrived. Starchy. Skirret. Uh, S-K-I-R-R-E-T, uh, if S-K-I-R-R-E-T. Any good? Correct. Is it nice? Yeah, it is. It's sort of somewhere between a carrot and a parsnip in flavour. Long roots, up to 25 centimetres long, but only about as round as your index finger. Sort of look like a big witchetty grub sort of shape. Yeah, and it grows in cool cold climates like where I am um, south of Orange
3: you said high end that's for yeah, fancy restaurants fancy and
0: restaurants and people who want unusual vegetables yeah and there's <laughs> plenty of them out there so willing to give something else a go so
3: what's your favourite recipe using garlic have you got one or you don't tell me you are. No, I never started. I hate it all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't actually have a favourite recipe. Um, we've done 40 clove uh, chicken occasionally.
3: 40 clove chicken? Yeah, it's
0: up there. Oh. <laughs> it's on the extreme end of things, but just generally... Got that, ladies. Yeah. 40 clove chicken. <laughs> just generally in any any sort of good cook. 40 clove chicken. Thank you. Send us the recipe. Will do. Thanks very much. I think it's, much. it's
3: just a chicken and 40 cloves of garlic. Is Pretty, much? It? Yeah. Pretty
0: much. Pretty much. A little oil. A <laughs> little oil, a little bit of salt and pepper. and, and yeah. A, you need an oven. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep, Roast right. it away. (laughs)
3: Lovely to meet you, Dougal. Likewise. Thank you. Is it Candy and Manly? Good morning, Candy.
6: Marker, good morning. It is wet and wild here. Perfect day to catch the Manly Ferry while you still can. (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh dear, don't say that. God help me. This lovely green and yellow ferry, so I just love standing on the deck and getting sprayed when there's a big sea on.
6: Well, it's a beautiful day for it. I'll tell you what's happening, which is fun. So we've got a very strong grassroots campaign happening here in Manny. We have to save our classic ferries. So today, I don't believe this has been done before, new technology. You come down to Manywolf, undercover, I'm pleased to say, and we've created an enormous grid, one and a half by two metres. The idea is that you get your photograph taken. And you take your photo to the grid, you find the, the location on the grid, and you put your photo on it. By the end of the day, all the thousand faces will turn into a message about saving the fairies. Wow, that's How, great stuff. Pretty cool, eh? Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty about the weather, but I mean, it, we are undercover, so I encourage people to come down to Manly Wharf between 10 and 3. And be part of the community to save the ferries. It's, well, can um,
3: he, can people do that if they don't still don't come down to the ferry? How can they How can they join the push?
6: Well, unfortunately, you physically have to be here. The, the good news is we did in fact get twenty two thousand signatures on our New South Wales parliamentary petition. My God, that was hard work. Yeah. But um, so it will mean it will be debated in Parliament on the twenty fifth of March. It's just crazy. I mean, this, this is the lifeblood of 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 Sydney, of look, Sydney, and Australia. Look.
3: Yeah, as I said, there's some things in Australia that are just, you know, they're just, they're just ours, like the Harbour Bridge. You can look all around Australia, you know, Uluru and those sort of things, and I class the manly ferries, the yellow and green manly ferries, those big mm. ones, as is, is in the same category, and you shouldn't mess with those things. And people who do just don't understand Australia or just don't understand the, the spirit of the place. That's what it seems to me.
6: No, well, I guess what we're really concerned about is what they're going to replace them with. Uh. <laughs> these God, these cheap and nasty little little ferry fast ferries, mind you, not slow ferries, fast ferries that have been built in China. And I'm already getting reports from Port Macquarie where they're being fitted out that they're full of defects. Just like the good old River cats that were but ordered from Indonesia that still haven't left the docks
3: and nothing, in seven months. And nothing seems to change, Candy, and nothing seems to change. The same things, I've been here for 30 years and the yep. same sort of things and people complain about the same sort of things, that things aren't made here in Australia and we can do stuff. I don't know who are the people who pre-select to be uh, parliamentarians, but they must have, I don't know. It's like the public service. If you go into the public service, as I heard Clinton say one day, Public service is all about serving the public. And if you don't want to do that, go and make some money somewhere else. But if you want to serve the public, that's what you should be doing. That's what a politician should be doing, and that's what people in the public service should be doing, serving the public.
6: Well, you know, it's infuriating. Um, I mean, these ferries now were actually built in Newcastle. They've still got 40 years of life in them. And instead of buying these super nasty ones from China, they could have bought them from the shipyards in Tasmania, where they are actually building ferries for all over the world. Eighty percent mm. of the catamaran ferries around the world are actually made here in Australia. So we go and buy them from China. I mean,
3: Candy, um, people might see you down the wharf today, but keep up the good work. Nice to talk to you. Thank
6: you. Great to talk to you.
3: See ya. Bye. <whistles> good day. This is Maka.
1: Yeah, Ron here, Macca. Good day, Ron. I'm in Bailing Up WA. I uh, last week you spoke about. A moth, which was called the hummingbird moth. And it, 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 I thought it was sad that we're using a South American analogy when we actually have a West, Australian bird that flies backwards and perpendicularly and so on. Really? And nobody seems to know about it. And I thought your, your listeners may have seen it, like me, not reported it because they thought it was generally known. But the pardelate can fly backwards and fly straight up and down like an elevator. I've heard it can also fly sideways, but it's not in any bird book that it does. So we don't acknowledge it. We talk about the hummingbird as the only bird that flies backwards. Yeah.
3: There you go. So the pardalote, I mean, again, when I whinge about no little birds in my yard, we used to have pardalotes. Um, I never observed them closely, so I never saw them doing what you described uh, a a hummingbird would do. I never saw them doing that. No, and
1: nobody does because they're normally treetop birds and they obviously do this to feed and forage around the treetops. But I've only witnessed it once in a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing, but I'm sure some of your uh, listeners may have also witnessed it. uh, It's not in the bird books. They did do some research in Birds Australia for me and they found records of reports Flying sideways, which I haven't witnessed, but yeah. in my case, he flew backwards and forwards uh, right under my arm, actually, because I was taking a coat off a rack and I had a pair nesting under the uh, back veranda.
5: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, he did it several times, backwards and forwards, because he was interested in the coats that were hanging there for some reason. He might have looked spider webs or thread or something, and they totally ignore humans anyway.
3: They're a beautiful little bird, and but look, I thought. Um... Because I had one trying to nest in a, you know, this is a, there was some work being done, and I had I thought they were trying to nest in in dirt, in like a, a sand sandbank. The,
1: the, the spotted pardalote apparently nests in the in, in in little tunnels under the ground, mm. and the the straighted one is I think nests in tree hollows. But not they lovely this birds. This was a spotted pardalote, and they had yeah. a nest just under my back veranda pavers, and the mate sat on the bottom rungs as a tank stand right alongside the nest all day and uh, that's when it occurred and uh, it yeah it, it fl- definitely flies backwards a bit and forwards several times directly back directly forward like a dart and then straight up and down like an elevator and do it again
3: so and you reckon uh, they should be called the pardalote moth not the hummingbird moth <laughs> that...
1: I, well i think it should be generally known that we do have a bird that does this And even the bird books don't acknowledge it and the bird industry doesn't seem to know about it. And I thought some of your listeners might have, like me, witnessed it and at least bring it forward. Because it's very hard to record these things. It only happens once in a lifetime. And um, normally they're up in the tops of trees and people don't see them doing it.
3: They're lovely birds. The little birds are are my favourites. That was Marie last week. Uh, She was down in Canberra. I just replayed it. You'll probably hear it later because you're a little behind us there. Uh, in the mornings, but um, yeah, that was Marie last week. As she was full of beans about all sorts of things. But thanks for telling us about that. But it just makes me miss the part load even more. Our little birds are done, you know, done over here in uh, in yeah, the well, eastern I've states, mate.
1: I got plenty of all varieties where I am, so that's <laughs> very fortunate.
3: It is. How's things in Baling up, Ron?
1: Very nice, very nice. The the, weather, the humid weather's gone from last week and we're back to nice chilly mornings and sunny days that's it's very good. pleasant
3: good on you ron nice to talk to you
1: okay see, ya. see you
3: see mate mm-hmm. bye
7: g'day mackerel it's ben felton the blind motorcycle land speed racer
3: hi benny uh tell us where you are
7: i'm in port augusta at the moment mm-hmm. and uh we've just come off uh lake gairdner oh.
3: the salt
7: lakes in south australia and we're heading back to sydney
3: Oh that's right we had uh, we had to call last week we had to call from uh Pete and Julie I think it was um and they were heading over there and he had a had a had a car racer but you you're a bike racer and you're blind Ben
7: Yeah totally blind macker. Uh Kevin McGee's my navigator and he's on another motorcycle behind me and we use analog radios mate
3: There you go well isn't it funny cuz I had um a lady ring me earlier um when I say earlier about an hour ago and she's heading to where was she heading to? Kel, she was Rosebud in Victoria, and and she was heading. She'd been in somewhere in New South, northern New South Wales, and she's heading to Rosebud. And she's because uh, there's a blind golf tournament there, and her caddy tells her what to do. And I suppose your your offside tells you what to do.
7: Pretty much. Uh... Yeah, he he gives me uh, navigation commands. He's got a little speaker in his helmet. I've got some uh, rubber ear molds and uh, pretty much go, go, go and left and right. And yeah, um, we've got,
3: yeah. I was just, uh, I was interested because um, I knew there'd been a bit of rain around the place and Lake Gend is a lovely, a lovely salt lake in South Australia. But how how was the weather for your cycle and, and car races?
7: Well, it started off pretty good, Macca. The weather was beautiful in the you know early 30s, a uh, bit windy on the Monday and the Tuesday, a little bit of a crosswind. So Magoo got out there and did a couple of shakedown runs on the bikes. And then on the Wednesday, it started to rain, Macca. Oh. We ended up standing there in two and a half centimetres of water on the Salt Lake, and that was the end of racing.
3: <laughs> that was the end of it. Oh, dear. Yeah,
7: mate. But it was stunningly beautiful out there, Macca. You know, we got some great shots of the motorbikes uh, standing out there, and it looks like they're floating on the surface of water.
3: Can you send a, can a, you send us a couple of shots to Kelly Kelly at abc.net.au, dot AU. Kelly.lee L-E-E, at abc.net.au. Okay. I'd love to have been out there, especially when the rain on that huge salt lake. It's a uh, and uh, our our friends that I spoke to last week were 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 saying how wonderful it was and how much better than Lake Bonneville, which is where they do the same thing in America, but apparently it's being put over by um, a lot of salt mining now over there. But um, it's, a, it's a lovely spot, mate.
7: Lake Erna, it's a stunningly beautiful place. The salt this year was probably the best, or certainly I've seen it in six or seven years. It was really consistent. It was looking great. and uh, But Mother Nature, uh, you know, had a way.
3: Yeah, how long have you been blind motorcycling, uh, Ben, and why did you take I that up?
7: I, yeah, I, I spoke to you back in, oh, I think it was 2017 or 2018. We actually went for the, the Guinness World Record for the fastest speed for a motorcycle ridden blindfold, which we achieved. 272 kilometres <laughs> an hour, Macca, on a bike when you can't see. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, a lot of fun uh, oh yeah mate, great I, fun I, yeah, yeah, we'd all love to do that we're all just saying yeah yeah, yeah. why can't we do that
7: god help me yeah. <laughs> mate I grew up as a kid in the bush and I grew up on motorbikes and fell in love with it as a 7 year old and went on to racing and and then uh, <clears throat> I, I, I got a journey eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa and by the time I was 25 uh, you know the eyesight was starting to shrink from the outside in and I gave up the racing and the driving and riding and and, uh, mate, I ended up um, playing Blind Quick of Australia, and I was on the island of Barbados and 42 years old, and I'm sitting there contemplating my future, and I decided to retire gracefully. And I thought, well, what was my dream as a kid? And I thought, motorcycle racing at the highest level. So the first thing I got on was Google Blind Lance B Record, and bingo. Blake's all over the world, I've been doing this for years. So that has been my mission for the last six years, Maca.
3: <laughs> and Kevin McGee's your offsider.
7: Yeah. I've He's
3: pretty good. handy with the bike, isn't he?
7: Oh, he's not too bad, but he doesn't like me beating him across the line all the time, Macca.
3: <laughs> and why do you why do you do that? Because you've got a better bike, or why? Or are you just a better rider?
7: Well, you know, see, what he gets confused, you see. When he's behind me, he, he, it's left and right. But oh, when he overtakes yeah. me, he's got to look in the rear vision mirror, and then he's got to go right to left.
3: <laughs> oh, dear, so, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah
7: mate, so, great, are... great great event out there mate beautiful spot
3: And isn't it nice to, in places in Australia like that you can free and you can go and just get out there and nobody's watching you usually I think except probably Google live Google Earth but yeah you're out there in the middle of nowhere it's just a beautiful spot isn't it
7: magic Maca and, and you know the Speed Week, the Speed Week event has oh, about 250 entries all different vehicles trucks cars bikes you name it vintage classic modern stuff It is an absolute motorsport Nuts uh, paradise, mate. It is unbelievable.
3: So what did you do for the other days when you had the two and a quarter centimetres of water lying around? What, you just had a barbecue and said, oh, geez, um, bugger, and went home again?
7: That... That's pretty much it. We we're all hoping that the, the, the water sort of would have blown down the lake and evaporated. But uh, even though the weather was good, so we're all sort of hoping and praying it'll happen. But unfortunately, the salt just didn't quite get dry enough. So. But um, look, stunningly beautiful place. And with the rain and the clouds and the light, you know, and, and, and the sun sets. And so we've got these amazing photos, Mac, which I'll we'll send you some.
3: All right, that'd be great. Good on you, Benny. Nice to talk to you, mate. Good luck. Say good day to uh, Magoo.
7: Will do, Macca. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Hello, this is
8: Penny, and I'm west of Will, Kenya.
3: Oh, half your luck. What are you doing there, Penny?
8: <laughs> well, I'm on my way to Dubbo, so I've been just left uh, Broken Hill an hour or so ago, I've been listening to you, and I just pulled up because I've got a bit of phone coverage because I have a question to ask you. Oh, there you go. Look, I've wondered, you know, out this part of the world, people give you the finger in the nicest possible way. And it does seem to be an old-fashioned thing. The old cockies, people driving the four-wheel drives, not so much the truckies, who I have to say, well done, guys, you've been going through all this COVID stuff. But what's the tradition about this business of just giving that nice finger of acknowledgement as you're driving along? And is it just a West West New South Wales thing?
3: Oh, look, I suppose so. I I mean, I'm not sure that... uh, uh... City people know about it, but they sort of do because everyone travels now. Penn. but then I think people just got used to it. Used to used to get it all the time, Um yeah. And then maybe I think everybody got used to it because so many people were on the road, and you, they. I suppose because in you know twenty, thirty years ago, forty years ago, which is not that less nineteen eighty. That's not like times just you know there wasn't nearly as many people around and so it was nice you'd see your, your car occasionally and you'd give them the finger in, in the nicest way if you know what i mean um yep. Tilt, yep. tilt your hat wink your you know tilt your head and wink you know tilt your head or just raise your finger or wink your eye yeah. or whatever but but now i think there's so much traffic you you know uh, you, uh often there's so much traffic you'd you know, you get a sore arm. But, um, but but when you're out, you know, west of Wilcannia, yeah, people will give you... Yeah, you go past and you say g'day because it's not a constant stream of um, traffic. I... I I don't know, Penn. Maybe that's the story. I, I don't know. That's a that's Anna, Well, it's, it? a, it's
8: a nice tradition and, you know, it is nice just to acknowledge other people on the road, I reckon, because, you know, we're out here. It, it's not, it's busy. I mean, it's, as someone said earlier, a lot of people travelling back and forth have just come through from Adelaide and the hotels are all booked out in Broken Hill and things like that, which is great for the local businesses. But I think it's just great to just give that little bit of acknowledgement that you're on the road together and you're looking out for each other.
3: I think so too, so. Pen. What's your What's your story? What are you You're travelling where to now? Uh.
8: I'm heading home. I live north of Newcastle. I live at um, Nelson Bay, and I've been down to Adelaide um, to visit elderly um, family, and just with the borders open, I just make the opportunity. Don't want to fly, and I do love this drive. I love this country. I'm looking at it now. It's the most beautiful country. Um, it looked better before Christmas. It's a bit dry now, um, but it's still, to go horizon to horizon, you know, 360 degrees, it's pretty special. Uh,
3: isn't that right? And I, I, I want to go to... Uh, Darwin in on Anzac Day they have got a bit of a thing on up there that weekend I'd like to go but I'm gonna I look I've I've given away flying I I'm not a big fan of flying if you if you can drive anywhere I reckon it's the it's, well I like to stop and talk to people so it, that just suits me <laughs> down to the ground so um, I like driving too and you get out there and as I was just talking to Benny they're out at Lake Gardener which is out in the middle of nowhere um, just magic place I mean the word magic is overused but a magic place to be. Such silence and uh, yeah, horizons, yeah. beautiful.
8: And it's, and it's great that more people are getting out in Australia to see it because I think, you know, we, people sort of tend to go, okay, let's go overseas. But it is a beautiful country and there are great people out here. And you're right. Talk to anybody and everyone will have a conversation with you. Great to meet other travellers. Yeah, it's a great
3: place to be. Good on you, Penny. Nice to talk to you. I, I I don't know if that explained. Yeah, that's my take on it. You know, <laughs> I think people just got used to being having so many people. You know, so many. Look, that's that's exploded. You know, the um, number of people travelling now from all over the place. Some of them would know that. Um, yeah, tradition, I suppose, but country people certainly do.
8: Well, let's keep it up because I think it's a great way of t- just acknowledging each other. Good on you, Pen. All right. See ya. See ya.
3: Bye. Michelle's in Benalla. Good morning, Michelle.
9: Oh, good morning, Macca. How are you going? Good, thanks. We uh, drove down from Sydney on our way to the Blind Golf. I'm vision impaired and my caddy's driving me down to the 31st Blind Golf Victorian Open at Rosebud starting the... tomorrow on Tuesday.
4: Well,
3: I knew you golfers were obsessed and you will go anywhere for a game of golf, but that's a, <laughs> that's a fair way.
9: Yeah, that's a fair way. But last year, um, we were down there for the 30th Blind Golf Open in Victoria and COVID hit, so everyone skedaddled out of there pretty quickly and were a bit nervous about getting on the aeroplane. So we thought we'd drive in case anything happened. And uh, But anyway, it's the first Blind Golf Championship that's happened since then. So everyone's looking forward to getting together again.
3: Tell us the ups and downs and the mechanics of blind golf. Uh, tell we're all dying to know, Michelle.
9: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the, the caddy is my eyes, and um, so lines lines me up, tells me um, how far it is, makes sure I or tries to make sure I don't go into hazards, and um, that's how it works. So, and everyone has a caddy helping them, and so it's a real true partnership it's fantastic, it's a, it's a great way of being able to continue
3: the sport. Oh and it's a lovely thing to do too mate, it's a, it's a ripper thing it's yeah. lovely. So you're yeah. uh, on your, where are you going to, you're in Benalla now and you're going to Rosebud, good morning Benalla Yeah,
9: yeah we stayed we stayed the night, last night it was 35 degrees when we got into Benalla and it's 9 degrees now as we're leaving this morning um, but we've got a great blue sky and we'll be at Rosebud hopefully and three or four hours so we've got to go out and give it a bit of
3: a practice but you are you are desperate aren't you you golfers i mean it's it's
9: it's
3: disgusting yeah
9: 900 kilometers for
3: a game of golf yep yeah well um i'll join you one day michelle um
6: uh,
3: yeah i'm getting some golf clubs for christmas i believe but um (laughs) who knows but good luck. How, how many people yeah. will be there? How many blind golfers, uh, Michelle?
9: There's about it's going to be about 25 blind golfers, and therefore tw- another 25 caddies. And um, they're from most states. Someone's coming in from most states this time, so it's good. And um, Rose Barton have been hosting this thing since the beginning of interstate blind golf, so all the The whole
3: club gets behind it and acts as spotters and things. So it's a great community when we get there. Good luck, Michelle. Great to talk to you. Thank you. See you. See you. Bye. (laughs) This month, Wednesday the 31st of March, in fact, marks the centenary in Australia of the RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force. Air Force 2021 is planning a series of national events to mark the sacrifice and service of the last 100 years. There'll be a spectacular mass aircraft flypast over Lake Burley Griffin between 10.30 and 12 on the 31st. And more than 60 aircraft will fly in waves over the lake. That'll be live on ABC TV, but it'd be great to be there, wouldn't it, to see that. Interesting to contemplate that there was a time when we built aircraft here, albeit Plywood Gliders and the Link Trainer, in Australia. Now, as you know, Slazenger used to make tennis rackets here in Australia. What's that got to do with aircraft manufacture, particularly plywood gliders? You've probably made the link already. Meet Rowan Goyne, who has just completed an article for the Military Historical Society of Australia, and he knows all about it.
2: The uh, Royal Australian Air Force put out an urgent request for transport aircraft because there was in 1942 there was the perception of an imminent invasion of the north of australia by the japanese and uh, we didn't have any transport aircraft available in any great numbers to transport troops so they issued a, an urgent uh, contract for the construction of a glider so in response to the request from the RAF, to Havilland and put together their chief designer and a stressing expert and the slasinger sports company which your listeners may remember at the time was busily producing tennis and squash rackets uh, out of plywood so that they knew how to work with plywood they provided a four person, a drafts person and the rest of the labor force as well as uh, vitally important was the woodworking equipment so the equipment able to to bend the plywood under pressure to, to, to make fuselages and things like that. This is a good example of where in response to an urgent request with an imminent threat to the country, a couple of companies get together and respond to it. The gliders were produced in a factory on the fifth floor of the Bradford Cotton Mills factory on the corner of Mizzerton Road and Parramatta Road in Sydney. And the building's still there. It's been converted into luxury apartments, which may interest your listeners. So that led to within the space of six months, two prototypes had been produced for the RAAF and they were delivered to them and they put in an order and the first of that was delivered to the RAF Subsequently in May forty three with another five in July.
3: I understand you were looking for information yeah. but De Havilland in Britain had no information about anything that happened in Australia, so you had to rely on the good offices of, of you know ordinary Australians. And was that was yeah. that interesting? I bet it was.
2: Well it was an eye opener, I must admit, the De Havilland Corporate Museum in Britain quickly replied to me and said, Oh no, we don't carry any uh, information about the activities of our subsidiary in Australia during the Second World War and, suggest, and really gave me, gave me nowhere to go. So then I contacted Your Good Selves to make an appeal to your listeners, because there's that great storehouse of private sources that are held within the country, uh, which outweigh the sources held in, public, held in public institutions, such as state libraries and the National Library. It was interesting that to have one in Britain didn't keep any records, I'd like to know whether the Havilland Corporate Records for a subsidiary here went. They had significant uh, contracts with the Australian government during the Second World War, for example, the production of the Mosquito exactly. and these gliders and other aircraft as well the, the Dragon Rapide transport and ambulance aircraft, they produced that as well for the RAF under under contract. So I find it perplexing they didn't hold the records, but they, they must be out there somewhere.
3: Exactly. All right, Ryan, we'll keep up the good works. What's your next project?
2: I'm researching the role of New South Wales Department of Main Roads in the Second World War. They constructed airfields in places like New Caledonia and Norfolk Island, far north Queensland and the Northern Territory. It's roads and airfields for the Commonwealth, but also for the US and French governments. So I'm looking for material on the Department of Own Roads in New Caledonia. So if anyone's got any private uh, photographs of that would be, and anyone who might have had a relative who worked on it would be extremely interesting. Because these were Australian citizens who served overseas, basically in an operational, forward operational area in New Caledonia, at the time when the Japanese were threatening Port Moresby and bombing Darwin. So it's, uh, I stumbled upon a book written by Michael Terry uh, called Bulldozer, which covers in sort of like brief, colourful history the work of DMR, but I'm after the full picture. if you know what I mean. So that's one of the things I'm currently working on. Rowan, when I first talked to you,
3: you used a word to describe yourself.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm a recreational historian. I've broadened myself from military historian. I write about space history. I'm also doing some history walk talks here in the Canberra for the upcoming Heritage Festival, and one of them's on walking in the footsteps of Curtin and Chifley between Old Parliament House and the Hotel Currajong where we talk about the role of Tifley and Curtin during the Second World War when Curtin stood up to FDR and Churchill and returned the 6th and 7th Divisions from the Middle East, again, when it when it was in our most desperate hour. And that included my grandfather, actually, because he was serving with the 7th at the time. So um, I'm glad he came back, put it that way. <laughs> That's, at least I'm here, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. Ron going, thanks very much and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks,
3: eh? Recreational historian, Rowan Goyne.
8: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.